I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Um, John John, we're sitting down with John John all the way from Edmonton. Uh, this is going to be such a cool conversation. Uh, before we dive into the conversation, John John, I'm going to throw it to you because Brian was asking about the sick mural that is your background right now, which I actually, I can't, I mean, I feel like it's real, but I can't quite tell if this is like a, a green screen setup or what you got going on there. So uh, give Brian a little bit of insight into what's going yeah. on there behind you. Sure. What you see behind me is our key creative wall of awesome. And uh, it was designed um, by uh, a previous uh, artist that worked with Key Creative named Brennan Black. And um, the reason it looks like green screen is because I, I uh, just got the new, brand new Apple Mac uh, MacBook Pro. And I was telling my technical officer, like, man, it looks like I'm actually in a green screen, but it's actually a wall. <laughs> yeah. um, so Yo, it's, uh, it's that actually a... Uh, so sick. Oh, that's I'll have to send you... Oh, that yeah. space looks awesome too. Dude, that's great. Oh, thank you. Like I've wow. said, like next time you guys are in Edmonton, would love to love to host you and and yeah. uh, check 100%. out the space. Yeah, yeah. But that. it tells a story about like what we do. So there's like little references to Star Wars. There's references to like hip hop and like uh, break dancing is kind of some of the stuff that I'm passionate about. Uh, but also as a therapist, um, you have our our building here. Uh, a little tiger sleeping here. Or my name is Trauma Book. We got these little inside yeah. jokes. So if you don't, if you're looking at it, you'd be like, I don't know anything about this wall, but it kind of <laughs> looks interesting. So they're talking points, really. That's cool. It's, I totally love it. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, John John is the uh, the CEO and founder of Key Creative, uh, which is a therapy practice that services children and schools of all abilities. And, um, and also leads a team of rehab med professionals to incorporate their hobbies and interests into meaningful learning with clients. Uh, John John's also a, um, an occupational therapist. So that's what we're here to talk about is like John John's career in occupational therapy, but also how you integrate the things that you love into your therapy. Uh, you know, you had mentioned already that you're, uh, you're into, you know, breakdancing, you're a b-boy, uh, uh, a beatboxer, uh, an acapella singer. So Dude, like, my, my dopamine receptors are just like firing. I know, right? right now. I'm so excited. <laughs> so let's like let's get in. So, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I say we can create like a, a boy band, the four of us here. Yeah. The four part yeah. harmony. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. <laughs> We've been looking for the fourth. We have we have some we have some boy band photos. Yeah. Yo, Donut, let me audition. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear your personal story on becoming an occupational therapist and like and how how you because we've we've had an occupational therapist on the podcast before, and and it's a really fascinating p- profession. Um, but I'm really curious to know how you like at what point you decided to intersect occupational therapy with the art and and like the creative expression that is, that means so much to you. Um, I uh, grew up in Regina, Saskatchewan, uh, from a, a, a beautiful uh, couple. 
my my mom and dad who immigrated from the Philippines, they met in Alberta and part of their uh, spirituality um, was performing, uh, performing arts. And so uh, we grew up um, exposed to not only pop culture um, and uh, performance, but also our own Philippine um, folk dance um, mm. and cultural experiences. And so within us, and my father was also a martial artist, uh, uh, karate and judo uh, expert. My mom was a dancer. And uh, my my uh, parents always uh, instilled in us the importance of uh, expressing yourself and using music and dance and gathering the Filipino uh, community together. And so my brother, who is five years older than me, his name is Joel, is an incredible musician, composer uh, by hobby. Like that's his hobby. Uh, but he could do that professionally as well. Um, he's uh he kind of helped pave the way for me because um, he was enrolled in, in organ lessons and um, was singing at an early age and he had perfect pitch. And so it just, my brother was kind of like uh, the first to kind of express our families uh, from our generation uh, talents of music and performance. Now, when I was younger, uh, so like around one, one or two ish, um, I would just get to experience, um, you know, some some incredible moments with my family, uh, uh, whether it's through, you know, family gatherings or seeing my parents perform Philippine dancing. When I was two, my father um, had a brain tumor, or they discovered a brain tumor, shall we say, and uh, they had to operate uh, on him immediately to save his life. And luckily, uh, they were able to save his life. Um, and unfortunately he became permanently brain damaged. Mm. Um, and so my, my mom, uh, basically tells me the story that overnight he became like our grandfather mm. overnight. He became someone that, uh, required 24 seven care. Um, so, um, my, but what my mom did was, you know, she is someone, uh, who's very resilient and just, you know, was hit with this truth that okay our life has completely changed he, my dad being the the primary breadwinner luckily my mom was as a professional and was able to you know hold down a job uh not only just hold it down but be the best teacher grade two grade three uh teacher that uh she could be to sustain us and we're very lucky uh and, and at the same time you know my dad became um a dependent and so she knew that you know, she knew some things, uh, some realities about my dad's uh, illness. Um, you know, uh, of course, you can't leave him alone for longer than, mm. you know, 10 minutes because he's going to turn on the stove. And if he's going to try and turn on the stove, he's going to try and cook, you know, a meal he'll forget. And we've almost had, you know, he's almost burnt down our condo <laughs> many mm. times. Um To the most basic elementary things of like just remembering who he was. Uh, was very difficult. Uh, but my mom knew how to engage him. And uh, she would gather us in um, our living room, our small little living room, and my father would be laying on a cot. And she would put on various music uh, to get him engaged because he was almost, I would say, comatose in, in some ways. Uh, that combined with like depression, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. he'd be kind of just laying there, kind of just living. But when my mom would put on like St Stevie Wonder or uh, Julio Iglesias uh, or Elvis, 
you know, my dad would start to hum. And, you know, my mom is quite, quite creative. She would realize that, okay, well, let's get Joel and John performing. And when we would perform, you know, I'm two in diapers, not really knowing. I thought every dad had a brain tumor, right? Um, just, just being in the in 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 the in the area, you know, you'd see my dad open his eyes and he'd smile and uh, he'd tap his foot, like he'd have this thing where his foot would just go like this to the music. Or if Michael Jackson's uh, um, uh, Billy Jean would go like my dad would like groove in his own way right <laughs> so over time you know my my mom exposed us to these to the to the the beauty of art and it we had a direct correlation of well that means more meaningful engagement with our dad um and so over the years my dad went from you know just totally not interested in doing anything and needing like caregivers to take care of him, feed him, all of that to, you know, eventually my dad getting back into some cha-cha, you know, in his own way. Of course, he had gro gross motor challenges and, you know, very quick to anger. But, you know, martial arts, uh, movies and, and action movies, I'm sure my mom rented a lot of movies that we probably weren't, shouldn't have seen. <laughs> a lot of art, <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, yeah, yeah. sport, Bruce Lee. Oh my God. Like I remember lots of Bruce Lee and my dad would, uh, you know, he, he'd get up from his chair or his bed and that would be a celebration because he'd be in bed all the time. Right. Mm. He'd get up and he'd use his cane, his four pronged cane. And he'd, he'd get to the VCR and he'd push play on enter the dragon or Chinese connection. <laughs> and then Bruce would have his sidekick, like just like this. And he'd face all his foes and he would just push pause. And I'd be like two or three years old and say, John, John. And I'd try and do the side <laughs> and hold it. And then he'd take his cane and like hold, put my foot up higher, right? Until I fall and he'd laugh. So these types of experiences, you know, um, help increase the quality of life for my dad. All, along the way, I became a martial artist. Like mm. I became a black belt in Taekwondo. I, uh, my brother and I started singing in <laughs> choirs, uh, a cappella uh, in high school. Uh, we became DJs. Um, you know, we were experiencing um, life in in a in a in a very privileged way, um, and exposed to all these different extracurricular activities. It wasn't until first or second year university that um, you know my dad started to slow down. And what what I mean by that, relatively, is he was able to go on vacations with us, like able to yeah. to travel in a vehicle. Um, couldn't fly, the uh, pressure in his brain would be too much. And I just thought, you know, that's going to live forever. And my mom, my resilient mom was just had this positive growth mindset that, you know, John, you're going to become a doctor. Like that's what all good Filipino boys do. Right. Yeah. Uh, and my brother and I kind of rebelled. They're like, I don't know. We don't want to be doctors, but we started to see my dad slow down. And that was one of the hardest parts of my life is I went to U of A. I, I got, a, I'm so blessed that I, you know, I was able to get a full scholarship to any university I chose. And I just followed my brother. My brother went to U of A and that's where my mom and, and, and my dad met. Um, but every time I'd come home, I remember coming home one, one Christmas and my dad's in a, in a group home. And I was so mad. Like I was mad at my mom and I was mad at my dad, like thinking you lived for like 19 years of my life, like, like in our home. And you know, how, why are you in a, what, what's happening? What the hell's happening? 
And my mom says, you know, John, it's hard for me. Like I, I'm in my late fifties, I'm almost 60 and you can't expect me to continue to care for our dad this way, mm. you know? And so that was hard for me. And, and I, I, I feel guilty because of how hard I was on my mom um, about it. But I, you know, just being a young 19 year old, someone who's ideal trying to think, okay, well, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to hopefully help my dad or help people like my dad. You know, uh, there's a different way to look at health, right? It, uh, it's using the quality of life that you can still have, regardless if you've got challenges. It's kind of my experience growing up with my dad and seeing my dad in his a wheelchair now, like he, he walked into the group home on, on his own two feet. And I was <laughs> mad at the staff. And I was like, I would never sh share that outwardly because I'm someone who would buries things in <laughs> but i would feel it and i would say you know like to myself what the hell's going on like what how how has his health declined so much and then i realized well i'm no longer there to engage in the daily activities they may have only been five ten minutes at a time you know um that kept his brain going kept his body but it, at the end of the day it's like it takes time and it yeah. takes proximity to do that um a year later um i'm I'm at his deathbed. Like he's, he's like, I'm in second year university going into pre-med or going to write the MCAT. And um, my mom says, this is Christmas Eve. You know, John, this is probably the last time you'll see your dad. Like this is, so he went into the, uh, the group home and I just will never forget how sad it was. Um, not only for me, but like to see, so many of his peers not have any family there mm -hmm. and it it was incredibly sad but also uplifting because we were able to spend christmas as a as a surrogate family not just as you know my own family and i remember my dad just kind of slumped in his chair he's too fed already and i i couldn't come to grips with it just trying to protect myself. Like, okay, don't cry. Don't, don't, don't let it out. Cause if I let it out, it's all going to go to shit. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I'm staying tr strong, trying to stay strong. And my, my mom says, John, go over to that piano and played one of dad's favorite songs. So I played Packabell's Cannon. And you know, you ever get that feeling sometimes you, like someone's staring right at you, staring right through you. And, and so I was playing and I felt this, I felt my dad, like, cause he was sitting like this the whole time. And, and until I felt this moment and I saw my dad, I turn around, he's standing on his own two feet like this. And he's, he's, he, he's not weeping. He's just, that's my son. Like, and that changed my life. Like just my whole life flashed before me. And, um, I realized all those moments, um, minutes, seconds, of engaging in an activity that was meaningful to him, whether it's through music, dance, martial arts, Philippine dancing, or even just, just hanging out, sitting, watching Jean-Claude Van Damme, um, was, was, was a meaningful life for him and myself and my brother and my mother. Um, and I, I sat down and I saw all these other, all these other peers, like these, these people in, in their late seventies, standing up round, giving me a round of applause. And I, I just felt like, oh my God, this is the end. Like, this is the end. But little did I know it was the beginning. It was the beginning for me. Before he died, 
on his deathbed, um, he told me a couple of things that that shaped basically me becoming an OT. Um, he he basically said, you know, don't forget number one where you come from, meaning, of course, that I can take that in many ways. I come from two successful, hardworking, loving, unconditionally um, immigrants who met in Canada. Um, you know, living the immigrant life, the the immigrant dream. So they've had many sacrifices. So that was number one. Number two is to always love and respect my mom and my brother. And I I said, I totally, I said, dad, I promise you. And um, two more promises. The th third one was use your talents. Uh, and I knew what he meant, like not just my schoolwork, but my, my passions and music, dance, martial arts, he says, use it to help people. And then the last one, um, which changed my life completely is go to the Philippines. And mm. I said, I promise you, I will do that. Fast forward a week later, it's the funeral. And my mom um, says, John and Joelle in front of the whole church, <laughs> I got all our, the whole community there. She goes, John and Joelle, I have a secret for you. I'm like, uh, are we adopted? <laughs> well, this is not appropriate. What kind of secret are you telling me here? Like, you, did you have an affair? What's going on, right? And she goes, your dad wasn't, was most likely not supposed to live for a year. And I forbade your, your godparents, your, who, are, who were the actual doctors of my father, the neuroscientists. I forbade our, all the doctors and the professionals to let you know that he was only supposed to live for a year. And I actually even... I actually even uh, withheld this from your dad um, because wow. I, 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 he is a, he is an educated man. He's a physician himself. I'm sure there was times he's like, why am I still alive? Like mm. what, what purpose do I have? And, and this is what made me want to go to into OT. She says, John, those daily activities, how, however meaningless it might be to others. It was so meaningful. Dear dad, he could give up the, he gave up the occupation of being a physician, but he could never give up the occupation of being a dad to you and a husband to me. And that's something that no one will ever take away, can take away from him. And I was like, whoa. And the key word there is occupation. Mm. And so that resonated with me. And I'm like, what is occupation? And I went back to school after he, he passed away and I'm thinking, okay, I'm studying for the MCAT. And something wasn't resonating with me with regards. To, I, and don't get me wrong. I love the medical profession. I, I have lots of family and friends, close friends. And thank God for doctors, right? But it wasn't resonating with me. Something that I just learned about my own family and my, my life didn't quite, didn't quite sit well with me wanting to be a doctor. Um, but I, I attended a session on, uh, at the U of A about what is occupational therapy. And the way it was, it was just perfect timing. You know, I just, I'm grieving. I'm still trying to heal. And even today I'm still trying to heal. Right. But like, I heard this one sentence that this one professor said, and occupational therapy is um, creating meaning through the occupation of life. So creating meaning. And I'm like, I've been an OT. My mom's been an OT. My brother's been an OT our entire life. And so that's how we got into to being an OT. 
I'll stop my answer there because I just keep going. That's a story. Yeah. But you know what? It's uh, so like what a what a powerful story. Yeah. Um, but like when I when I lit up and said that I was so excited to talk to you, um, I feel like you just encapsulated on even a more deep and profound level the feeling that I've had about occupational therapy since I first learned about it. Like that idea of creating meaning for for people through the things that like bring you meaning and passion yeah. like in in your life i feel like I, I i was going through this like phase of of saying this quite a bit on the podcast but i was saying like i felt like i missed my my calling in life um and i said this specifically about occupational therapy and many it, like, other things and a few <laughs> other things but i really meant it about occupational <laughs> therapy like it's it's such a it's such a beautiful creative yeah. endeavor to like create that meaning for other people, but I'm, I'm curious, like to, to ask you a question on this is like, like that, that one sentence sort of gives you an idea of what it's about. But when you really started to like dig into it, what did you uncover about it that like really told you like, Oh yeah, like this is not only what I thought it was, but it is that. And so much more to me as a person. Yeah. And, and Brian, thanks for sharing that. Cause like, there's so many layers to OT and like, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to also shout out to you. Like it's never too late. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I started acting again, yeah, you know, yeah. and I know shout out to you, Jeremy too. You know, you're an actor. Um, but like for me, when I started working with kids, kids with autism on the autism spectrum, I started to really feel alive in the sense mm. that I could take what my professors taught me and make a practice based on what I believe OT to be. And a lot of times, I'll tell you what, it was against the grain because traditional occupational therapy practice back in 2004, um, and this is no disrespect to our profession and to these areas of OT, was fine motor skills. It wasn't looking at necessarily how do we help make a meaningful life outside of fine motor skills like printing and um, cutting on the line and all of that. And so thank you, thankfully my, my employer at the time <laughs> didn't fire me, <laughs> but listened to, you know, ideas I had, I, I was teaching kids who were already aggressive, right. Who were already kicking holes in their wall to kick a Taekwondo pad yeah. instead. And that scared a lot of people thinking, you're going to teach my child how to be a, more of a fighter? And I said, no, your child is a fighter. We're all fighters. Let's learn how to fight safely so mm -hmm. that we can be more regulated. And so for me, I started to realize, listen, if I want to continue in this profession, because we learned something in school that was so awesomely ideal, but in practice, I learned in the field that it's not it's not what as ideal as, as it seems to be. If you want to be an OT who wants to use dance, you have to create that. Yeah. You got to find the research behind it and then inform everyone else. Like this is what it is. And that's essentially what I did with like the martial arts program. Um, that's when I owned it. I said, listen, I don't want to be an OT that only focuses on fine motor skills. I want to help people find meaning through their act, uh, activities of daily life but not just school not just mm. work but play yeah how much how much of being an ot is <clears throat> is meeting people where they are oh it's a hundred percent a hundred percent of uh i'd say um of a of a of, of an, a client-centered ot sorry shall we say 
mm-hmm. should be meeting everyone where they're at. Uh, like it should be because we it's setting up failure if we expect mm. people to be here. Um, you know, and 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 it's educating other people to say, listen, you want them to be here. Let's say we work with a lot of kids who are it's really sad who are getting expelled from schools because they the schools don't have the support to help them. Mm. And every child, every person deserves an education. And so I always try and advocate for the clients and, and for students to say, and to teachers too, um, you know, OT is, is educating people where they're at and that's okay. Like maybe they're in grade eight, but they're, they're functioning perhaps at a kindergarten level um, and they need 24 seven care yet. It doesn't mean that they're a write-off for all things grade eight. Yeah. No, it's just that those certain parts of that, there's still things like maybe music class, maybe math. Maybe they're like incredibly amazing at math, but we have already written them off because other domains of their life are, Mm -hmm. are, you know, um, it's a, it's a, it's a a really interesting thing that you mentioned earlier about, about um, kind of like going against the grain with the profession. I, I, I just watched a, um, I watched a show the first episode of a show the other night called shrinking, which um, as a, as a, as a, as like a, from like the film perspective, I wasn't like super, stoked on it but it had a really great premise to it um jason siegel and um harrison ford it's an apple tv oh, yeah. show yeah and so jason siegel's a is a is a psychologist uh, i'm not sure if he's a psychologist or a psychiatrist but he's um he's working at a practice and he is like his wife has passed away and he's going through like a lot of he's going a lot of going through a lot of personal trouble and he's really struggling with how to provide help to his clients which he kind of sees as um, as ne- never getting out of their patterns, and he's and he's kind of prescribing them the like by the book practice that he's learned from his schooling and everything, and he's not really seeing it get any results. And so he has this client come in who is um, who it was in the military and is suffering with some PTSD symptoms, and he's gotten in a lot of like violent like physical altercations, and. He, he's, he, he having this session with this guy and he goes, you know what? Fuck it. Let's, let's go. You know, instead of like exactly what you said, he was like, instead of, instead of teaching you to like not be violent, let's try to like direct that in a positive way. And he takes him to an MMA gym and he's like, (laughs) let's like, let's put it here where you, where instead of seeing red, you can like process this in a way that is going to be constructive and helpful. And you know, it's like way outside the guidelines of what, what, like what his profession is saying that he's allowed to do and what he should do. And it's kind of like this really, this like very kind of like synonymous example with what you're saying here of like, mm. you know, sometimes we just need to like look outside the lines a little bit and try yeah. to find these like creative ways to like innovate within a, innovate within a profession. Cause like nothing can stay stagnant forever yeah. and like, and, and finding ways to do that in different ways. And that can be helpful for people is obviously, um, is obviously incredibly beneficial. Like I think about, you know, what are the things that make up I, I love my job, but I know that there's a lot of people out there that have, that don't get to, that don't get to engage in a profession that they love. Yeah. And like, how do you look to the things like music or dance or art or exercise that you are passionate about? And how do you, how do you get that, to, like integrate that into kind of like finding meaning and how can you access that in like, in something like you do like OT? Yeah. 
Oh, for sure. Thanks so much for sharing that, Taylor. I, I actually I actually was inspired. I saw that trailer yesterday on Apple TV. It's shrinking. And I'm like, I got to watch this because it, yeah. it seems like right <laughs> up our alley and it looks awesome. Um, so thank you for that example, because that's exactly I mean, that's the good question that we have as therapists and as coaches. We call ourselves coaches. We have SLPs, uh, sorry, speech language pathologists, physical therapists and occupational therapists, as well as uh, clinical social workers. And the number one thing that we always try and do is be to be client-centered, we want to honor their spirituality. And spirituality to someone might mean Pokemon Go. Mm-hmm. It might mean yeah. RPG games, right? It might also be Dungeons and Dragons, or it could be ballet <laughs> or culinary arts. And so our, our system at Key Creative is we try and um, pair, shall we say, pair coaches with uh, who have similar interests or areas of expertise, or even just an area of growth, right? Mm. Um, with clients. And then a lot of times we are not experts in like, let's say a, a very specific niche, like um, Dr. Who, like I had a client who's lived and died Dr. Who. <laughs> I remember watching it as a youngster on YTV yeah. and mm-hmm. kind of being freaked out. Like, what is it? I don't understand. Right? <laughs> Felix, but I became yeah. in a, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I, uh, <laughs> I became. Jairus, Jairus uh, I, was, Jairus I was just referencing Doctor Who. I was like, oh, they like oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so like, our job is to get interested in what they're interested in, mm. and if we can do that, then like that's half the battle is relationships. And I know Doctor Jody Carrington was was on your your podcast and yeah. talk about connection. Mm. If there's no um, if there's no therapeutic connection, there's it's really hard to do therapy. It's really yeah. hard um, to engage and, and create change. So, you know, like we try and recruit people who, and we have a saying here at Key Creative, and I don't say it enough, but we, we take our work seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. Mm. And so we we tend to attract people who are um, diverse and have a variety of different backgrounds and interests. And we try and promote ways so that we can feel a culture of safety where at work we can play and of mm. course not not work is, is is not all work is play it like it's serious work right yeah but the parts that we can play then that can hopefully create a safety with our clients i i told you guys i miss my calling <laughs> yeah you know? yeah like i, I mean, feel like it's a dream yeah. job for someone with with adhd too who like is like I feel like the job that you just described is like a a source for a never ending source for hyper focuses for me. Like I, I if I was working with a kid who had this like unique hyper focus and I got to like hyper focus on that with them Diving and like connect with them, with them yeah. on it, yeah. it's like what a what yeah <laughs> how amazing would that be? The, the part that <laughs> I find really fascinating and and this is kind of an angle that I don't think we've touched on very much on the show, but is the importance of culture and like how culture plays into uh, the work that you do. Um, how, like <clears throat> how does how does culture play a role in occupational therapy and and how do you, how can you utilize that as a tool to like connect with with clients on a more meaningful level. Um, that's a great, and thanks for asking that question, Jeremy. I was actually wanting to, to, to talk about culture, so that's fantastic. The Canadian model of occupational performance is just, it's called CMOP. Uh, it's a frame of reference on, on, on how OTs uh, in Canada can look at a, at a person. And we have a person in the middle, 
um, with, that's made up of emotions, their thoughts, their their physical body, and their spirituality, yeah. right? Whatever is uh, gives someone that meaning. And then you have the occupation on the outside. So self-care, productivity, leisure, right? But who's to say what's more important to one person? You know, some people it's leisure, some people it's self-care. For me, I incorporate all, like I believe when I'm um, doing work, I'm doing a little bit of all self-care, productivity, and leisure. But the part of culture is the last layer. And it's not necessarily last or first or second. It's just physically on the map. It says there's four types of environments. It's the physical environment. So that has everything to do with lighting, sound, physical structures. There's the social environment. You know, who's a part of that person's eco map? Are they single parent? Are they in a one-on-one educational assistant in the student? Or are they totally separated, have no friends or what have you. Um, th- then you have the institutional environment, which is uh, the institution of education or the institution of Canada or Alberta or what have you, um, the rules and the laws uh, or the social norms that you have to abide by. But I think um, a huge piece of being an OT is first and foremost, honoring the cultural environment. Yeah. And the cultural environment, I think, oftentimes gets missed in a, I don't want to, again, I, this is very controversial. I, I like in a very fast paced clinic, medical clinic, or even a rehab med clinic where it's like, it's about like, let's help you with your physical support or your mental health, not necessarily looking at that. OTs look primarily at the whole picture yeah. and that culture of what do they believe, you know, about themselves? What are those beliefs? Who do you belong to? What do you belong to? What do you identify with? The culture of perhaps, you know, their ethnicity, but also a culture of Pokemon Go. Yeah. Right. right. So, so culture is, is such an important piece, I believe, uh, that distinguishes OT, uh, perhaps from other rehab med um, professions. Um, It's embedded. It's embedded in the way we think. Especially, especially in a country that's so culturally, culturally diverse, you know, like, especially in Canada, um, because, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's such a vast culture to our country, no matter where you're from, no matter what province you're in, um, you know, and it's, I I can see how that definitely play a a massive role in the kind of care that, that needs to be received. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, being, being someone, uh, who identify, like I'm Filipino Canadian, I identify as Filipino Canadian growing up. I, I, I totally agree with what you just said, Jeremy, because like growing up in the eighties, nineties, early two thousands, you know, Philippine culture in Regina, Saskatchewan <laughs> is so much different than yeah. 2023, mm. um, diversity in, in everywhere, everywhere, like, mm. like the diaspora, uh, of, cultures globally is in my opinion awesome because now we're having dialogues and understandings and sharings um you know we're we're all we're more similar right than we are different and yet those differences make us awesome that's i think that's what makes us you know that's what makes life beautiful we're all different but we're also the same but we're more different too Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. What did what did your what did growing up um with with two parents who are immigrants from the Philippines with living like growing up with that that sort of um culture of coming up with immigrant parents in a Canadian society which obviously in terms like you just said in terms of diversity looks much different and then also I'm assuming I'm assuming you've 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 made your way to the Philippines and like how that and 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 like going deep dive into you know like the roots that your parents grew up with and like how that sort of changed you integrated within to like integrated into you and maybe how that then plays into this conversation around like culture in the work that you do yeah thanks for that question taylor like the the thing that like i get excited to talk about a lot is um uh, my continuous journey of figuring out who I am culturally, <laughs> um, identity-wise, um, and thinking about w- what types of stories I want to share with my own kids. So remember that last, uh, sec- uh, not secret, but more that last uh, request that my dad had before he died was to go to the Philippines. And that literally, that literally changed my, my, my whole belief about myself and about life. Um, I had the opportunity in 2006 to, to travel with the Filipino Canadian Serrani Association and performed hip hop, uh, Philippine cultural songs and cover songs of like Black Eyed Peas, etc. <laughs> and that going to the Philippines, I thought, okay, this is way different than growing up in Canada. Uh, um, I, I know that if you've any of you have gone to the Philippines or any third world country, you'll, you know, right away, as soon as you step down off that plane, you're like, this is, there's something different about, about this place. Um, And then if you go into the different like inner city spots of, of a third world country, such as the Philippines um, for myself as a privileged Canadian, um, you know, I, I was soon schooled about the socioeconomic challenges that, uh, um, that belong to the country where my, my ancestry is from basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had some identity crises growing up, you know, cause a lot of my friends, um, I had some Filipino friends, but all of my friends were Caucasian. And, and it, over the years I started gravitating, like some of my best friends are probably representing the United Nations in Regina, Saskatchewan. So it's kind of like we all gathered and we, we uh, shared this experience of music love for music, sports, expression. And so growing up, I still felt like, okay, well, what does it mean to be a Filipino Canadian? Well, as soon as I stepped and landed into the Philippines performing with uh, this group, I, I like, whoa, 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 this is not who I, like, I don't know who I am anymore. Um, I had people who were, I'm five foot four and I felt I felt normal height there, you know, like so physically, <laughs> you know, like you have a similar nose to me, but yet my skin was still a lot lighter. And I, the way I moved, they could say they could spot me a mile away. This guy's a Balik Mayan, which means someone who returns to their country, but I've never even been there. Right. And I could hear them speaking in Tagalog about me and like, who, who the hell is this guy coming into our country? Oh, he's going to spend his American dollars and 
uh, take advantage of our economy. And, you know, you could see you could get the looks, but then you also got the other side of, oh, you're so fair skinned. You're guapo. You're, you're, you're handsome. Wow. And they touched me, the kids in the street touched mm. me like, wow, you're, you're like me, but you don't act like me whatsoever. You're not from here. <laughs> and I try and speak the Gallagher. They just laugh. And I'm like, oh shit, I better not even, I don't know. I can't, what am I doing here? Right. <laughs> and then we would perform. We would perform on stage and I'm like, okay, this is incredible. I felt like a rock star, you know, doing Apple the app or like uh, Will I Am on stage or break dancing, doing some windmills, come off the stage. And I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. Kuya John John, that's amazing. And I come up and I do the tinickling, the, the Philippine dance, the, these two long bamboo sticks and you jump in the middle and you're, you're performing a lot of, uh, pre-colonial Spanish influenced dances mm. and they would feel like this guy, this guy remembers who he is, you know? And, and so if I'm trying to think, is this what dad wanted me to experience? I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. I'm a rock star. I'm going to live here. Yeah. You know, I just, I just <laughs> yeah. broke up with a long-term <laughs> girlfriend and I'm like, I'm going to live here. I'm going to move here. But it was when we started to walk, oh man, started to walk to our, our little vans and, and our, uh, you know, our tour buses and these kids that weren't, they, they weren't part of the schools we were, we were performing at, at this outdoor space. They were kids, street children that didn't have shoes and some of them missing limbs. And, you know, some of them completely naked carrying, you know, a five-year-old carrying a one-year-old, like, mm. and they say, Kuya, Kuya, look at me. And I, I, I look at them like, Oh my God, I'm, whoa, where are your parents? You know, and like, Kuya, Kuya, beatbox. And I'd be like, you want me to beatbox? Okay, yeah. So I'd be like, and he's like, no, 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 my turn, Kuya, my turn, my turn. And I'm like, okay. And they'd be like, boom. I'm like, oh my God, I just got schooled by like a five-year-old who's carrying a one-year-old yeah. <laughs> beatboxing. And I'd, I'd be like, oh my God. Like, then it hit me. Like, it hit me. Like, my dad, of course, you know, my parents always want to tell me like how privileged I am. Um, but I, didn't really get it. Didn't really get it till that experience, you know? Yeah. And they were looking to me to like validate who they were because they thought I was someone important. And I was looking for validation myself, you know? And I got the validation from them. So it's like this symbiotic, weird, dynamic relationship. Yeah. But that's when I decided, you know, um, to change change my outlook about who I am and what I'm doing with my life. And, and so that's when I decided to start the Balik Bain project, yeah. which is to go and share a, 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 a joint experience through expression, um, which then led me down a path of becoming a trauma certified trauma specialist and telling the story in a documentary and all of that. So anyways, uh, again, I could talk for days and I, I'll just, Keep that answer there. Um, well, I, I mean, I would love for you to kind of give us a little bit of insight into Balik Bayan, the uh, from victims to survivors, because it's, um, it's, I mean, it's, it sounds really cool. You know, uh, for people who don't know, it's a documentary, uh, Balik Bayan from victims to survivors, which won the 2020 Edmonton International Film Festival Audience Choice Award uh, for best documentary feature and was nominated for best documentary and best director at the 2021 Rosie Awards, uh, which is the Alberta Film and TV Awards. Um, what you know? What was that project? What uh, 
what I mean, obviously, this is like it, it, it very much stemmed from this trip. But like uh, what did, what made you decide to kind of dive into the role of, of director, producer, actor? Yeah. And, and Jeremy, I didn't even know I was really making a documentary in the sense that like as a first time filmmaker, I felt like uh, what's that that show exit of the exit at the gift shop? Oh, seen uh, that with Banksy? Uh, with Banksy, exit through the gift shop. Yeah, right. Exit through the gift shop where they he, Banksy thought that, that he was working with like a actual documentary guy, and he was just filming shots, weird, random, obscure shots. I felt like I was that guy. Yeah, I right. thought I'm like, oh, I, I have thousands and th- hundreds. Sorry, not thousands, hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage over the years because we go back 2006, 2007, 2009, 2011, etc. Every couple of years, every year or so. And I had all this footage and I'm, I'm, I initially thought I want to share something with my future children of documenting, you know, my, this journey of exploring who I am, but also um, how to help, help other people also find who they are, you know, uh, through hip hop, through dance, through therapy. And it wasn't until 2007 that I'm like, I, I linked up with a local editor to help me cut something that would show my employer and my family and friends back home that I wasn't just coming here to vacation. I'm, I'm, you know, thank you for allowing me to take some time off work. I I'm actually have a project and the pro and I still didn't really know what the project was. Right. All I knew is Balik Bind meant someone who returns, returns with service, but also with humility to learn about culture, about Philippine culture. Um, and so I was, filming hours and hours and hours. And luckily I, I met this editor, his name is Buck Pago um, and Lissandres Kawagas. They helped me cut this one hour doc. Um, but I put in like Michael Jackson and like Kanye West music. And like, I I, I'm, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, like I, I couldn't license it. I, I didn't even know about licensing right, music, right. right? So I shared it with friends and family and they're like, this is awesome, John John. Like. It inspired one of my godbrothers, Bernie Hernando. He's a producer, a film producer. He produced a movie called Wolf Cop from Saskatchewan, from Regina Mm -hmm. with Echo Lens. Yeah. 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 So he, he was like, John, John, I'll come with you and we can, we can start, we can shoot it properly because he was in the film industry. And so we were filming and we're trying to figure out, well, what's the story? Like, what is the story? Um, yeah, it's about you, I guess, John John, and you're you're growing up with a father and a mother with, from the Philippines. Um, about you wanting to support, you know, Streetlight Philippines, an orphanage as incredible in Tacloban City. You're using hip hop. Like, okay, that's interesting to your friends and family. <laughs> Is it really interesting to the world? Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. Let's keep working on it. So we kept going. Meanwhile, the documentary is becoming years upon years, like 2011, 2013. And in 2013, um, my beautiful wife and partner, Paula, uh, Audrey Rivero, and I created um, some programs, like some really um, helpful books, like My Name is Trauma, Ooh. that helps teach uh, children and their caregivers <laughs> about what trauma is in their body. And we translated it into Tagalog. And Warai, which is the local dialect in Tacloba. And we're like still filming. I don't know what this documentary is going to be. But then in 2013, Typhoon Yolanda um, destroyed 
like so much of Tacloban City and the Visayas regions of the Philippines. We were literally in the Philippines doing our one of our balikbind trips. Um, and three weeks later, we're back home in Canada. We're actually in Canmore, Alberta, at one of our key creative retreats. And I turn on uh, CNN, right? And I see Anderson Cooper standing over all this wreckage at the church that we literally would go to with the kids mm. or the airport with destroyed, no, um, no uh, roof. And then these BBC people interviewing our kids and my, one of our closest friends, Alan Johannesson, who is the founder of the, of the orphanage. And I literally, guys, I literally, you know, I, I like to think, I always tell people that we're not immune as therapists. We're not immune to feelings and, and yeah. we're not immune to trauma. I was vicariously traumatized. I literally sat there with the remote in my hand, my jaw dropped. And my, one of our chief technical officers came out and was like, John, John, are you there? And I was shaking just like this thinking, oh my God, I, I'm, I feel helpless. I feel powerless. And what was all of our work there? Like, what did it do? Like, I was trying to think like, what, it made me question everything. And I, um, uh, I called some of our other Balik Bind members. And of course I was with Paula and thinking, it felt this terrible feeling of like, uh, I'm an imposter. Like what the hell, what business do I have going to the Philippines, trying to think of making a difference when like these kids are fighting for their lives. There's, there's civil unrest right now. There's no food. There's everyone lost their lives. Like, and, and so I, I spent the next like six months just trying to be like, trying to make sense, trying to protect myself also, but also put up fundraisers for streetlight. Oh my gosh. Like I, and then I, I thought, well, okay, come back to terms with, you know, <clears throat> what's the grand picture? What are, what are we doing? And all in Johannesson, the, the, the friend I was telling you about who started streetlight contacted us and said, John, John, we're okay. We're safe. And this is like in January, right? Typhoon happened in November and they said, we're safe. We're in Cebu. The kids are safe. We did lose some members, um, mm -hmm. but we need the Balik Bind team. Can we come back? All the, all the UN and the Red Cross therapists are re-traumatizing our kids because they're wanting to debrief and they're wanting to ask what happened. But as a trauma specialist, they say, you know, what we've learned from you guys, from you and Paula is that, that can be re-triggering and the way to work with trauma is through the body. And so we need a special Balik Bayan trip to, to hopefully resolve some of that trauma, but also heal together. Mm -hmm. And so Bernie reached out to Bernie, my, my God brother and Bernie says, I've got, I don't know if I can go with you, but I have an awesome colleague by the name of Rob Hillstead, who's my co-director uh, with Balik Bayan. He's willing to go and be a frontline and he'll, he'll capture this whole thing because I, I, I said, you know, and Alan said, we need to tell the story of resilience, not poor us victims, but look how resilient we are. Mm. Look how, look how, you know, strong the Filipino people were. So that's when I knew that we we're going to do a documentary. That's when I was like, okay, we've got all this footage and now we're going to actually document properly with, with Rob, 
um, thanks to Bernie. And thank God for Rob. And God bless him because I'm sure I was not the easiest person to work with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, but thank God for Rob because he had a professional, he, had, he brought the professionalism to our movie. Um, and so we captured that. We got together and, and the, the movie documents that, um, how we, I mean, the healing is lifelong, right? As we all know, but like to be able to get out of crisis, to move from crisis to a healing journey was kind of what the movie captures Yeah. Um, through the same stuff that we've been doing over and over, right? The, the, the repetitive Philippine dancing, the body percussion, the, the tribal yelling, the, um, uh, the, the laughter, telling jokes, the singing, the dancing, you know, activating the polyvagal um, nerves through, through vocal percussion and, mm. and, and expression. Um, but also narrative therapy, a way to change the narrative using art therapy. Um, so, so we had a we had an awesome journey. Um, but it, again, it was just more of a a schooling for me, someone who thinks like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm an expert, I can come. But like, no, no, I need help. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not here. I can't help anyone if I can't help myself. You know. So, at many years later, we kept, we still didn't finish the movie because. It was, and part of it was probably because I didn't know how to how to get it wrapped, like tied up, and 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 you know have that denouement. It's not just about the typhoon because the movie isn't about the typhoon. Mm. The movie is about family. It's about surrogate families. It's about um, meaning and connection, right? And resilience. Um, and so you know, I've even gone back 2016, and got more footage. 2017, got more footage. Uh, 2018, more footage. 2019, more footage. And then finally, we're like, no, stop there, John John. Let's just, let's cut it, right? So, yeah. I'm I'm curious, John John, like what, it's something that really strikes me about that whole story is that, um, you know, you were going and doing this this thing that was so meaningful to you and, and meaningful to the people in the community. But there was this like moment of like, of like, of doubt when you first um, saw that on, on CNN, the, that the typhoon had, had hit and the impact that that had, it was almost like you were like doubting the, the work that you had done up until that point. And then, you know, from November to January, then you get the call in January and, and all of a sudden now you're going back to do this work that like you've, you've almost now been like, I, I, I don't want to use the word validated, but for lack of a better word, validated in the work that you'd been doing up to that point and called to like come back and, and, and even take that to the the next level. Like what, like, what is it to go, th- what is it like to go through that process of growth in like putting your meaning and passion into something, not sure if it's been helping and then sort of like finding out and evolving to that next level of work through that um, traumatic experience. You know, Brian, the thing I, that comes to me is is vulnerable vulnerability um, and humanity are the two words that come to me. Um, going back to the saying, you know, we take our work seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. And that that line has helped me um, get through those moments to to be like, okay, like you're not perfect, and it, it made me realize like I was trying to be perfect my whole life you know, trying to prove to my, my family, my parents, like, um, I'm a good boy comes a lot of that comes down to, you know, also growing up with a father with a huge life change trauma in the home, 
at a two at a, at two years old, you know, uh, and growing up with that responsibility of you're a caregiver now, you're you're going to take care of these people. So that was ingrained in me, and thank God for therapy, mm. my own therapy, um, and 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 more more importantly, and I don't I don't say this enough. Um, my best friend and who I've known since grade one, I married her. Her name's Paula, and she's been on this journey. She knows me better than anyone on this earth. And shout out to her for telling me like it is. She always tells me, like this morning, she says, just have fun today. But you know, I'm me. She knows me going into this. Like, I got to tell the best story. I got to like, I got to be that. She's like, freaking be yourself, John, John. I love you. And I kissed her. And, you know, thank God for Paula um, because she helped me understand that it's not about outcomes. It's never was about outcomes. It's it's about the journey and the relationships that we build. And those memories, those core memories can change us at a cellular level. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was validating too, Brian, like the, the perfectionist in me, the, the person who wants to be seen, you know, the professional, of course, loves and craves validation and attention to be like, oh, wow, Alan wants us back. Oh, thank God. Like, oh my God, we actually made a difference. Like, Oh my God. You know, of course I, I'm always looking for that human humanity, the need of significance and connection and to get that kind of, yeah, help get push us forward. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, the vulnerability of being like, have me question, like, what can I control? Mm. I can only control my own beliefs, attitudes, and behavior. I can't control how other people are going to respond and, you know, um, and that's my job. My job, I've redefined my job as a therapist. My job isn't to change people. My job is to hopefully be my best self so that people can change on their own. Um, I really, I really, uh, I really identify with that too. And, and like, um, you know, as a fellow perfectionist, um, and speaking to my therapist about this quite a bit, I, I, uh, I, I've said this on the podcast before, but I think it's worth saying again is that, um, I kept using one day in therapy, the best version of myself. I want to be the best version of myself or be better. Whatever. My therapist said to me, can I, uh, can I offer you a a suggestion for a word to try and use in place of best? And I was like, uh, yeah, what's that? She was like, what if you tried to be the most honest version of yourself? And in that moment, I just like broke down. I was like, holy fuck. (laughs) It's so much easier to be the most honest version of yourself than to try to be the best. And the pressure that comes with that is just so, can be so hard sometimes. And if you're, if you're honest with yourself and your intentions are pure and good, then like, is that not the best version of yourself anyway? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Like authenticity and like what you should share there, Brian, I, I, the, the, the thing that comes to my mind is um, as a, as a person, but also as a therapist, as a actor, performer, we're always striving for authenticity because authenticity is, is hopefully um, of course, inwardly experienced, but then also outwardly perceived and creates connection. Yes. Yes. So that's a good, a good reminder for me, Brian, um, even just as I'm speaking, just to remind, and I speak on this. It's so funny. I speak yeah. on this. Yet yeah. maybe that's why I speak on it is to try so I can hopefully still grow in this area. Yeah. Like authenticity is all we can actually ever ask for. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're all yeah. practicing. That's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, I mean, John, John, how can, uh, how can people get uh, involved with key creative? How can people stay up to date with the work that you're doing and, and uh, maybe, you know, maybe take part in some of the services that are offered where you're, where you're at. For sure. For sure. People can go, go to our website, keycreative.com. Um, and, and learn of all of like, even the Bali Bind project, the, there's like different things around, uh, our key creative website. Um, but they can, they can volunteer. If you're, if you're in Alberta, you can volunteer with our key adventure club, which, um, we, we, we do the young masters type one do we do learn to ski or snowboard with the Edmonton ski club. Um, we do capoeira, you know, uh, uh, RPG game. So like really how you can get involved is like share your if you're doing that already, share it and like, you know, connect with us on, on social media. Cause our, our whole thing is we want to reach, we want to reach people where they're at. Like, mm. you know, we, we want to of course think globally, but act locally. And um, people can do that by, by just being there, share something about themselves vulnerably uh, with the risk that it may not be accepted, but do it anyway, because chances are, you're going to feel better about yourself. And in doing so, you might actually create better connections with people around you who might actually gravitate towards that. Like mm-hmm. Kind of like that law of attraction. You put it out there and you, know, you build it, they will come. Um, so <laughs> as cliche as it sounds, uh, you know, I, I tend to overuse <laughs> quotes uh, from the 80s, 90s uh, <laughs> film industry. <laughs> into my uh, but yeah, that's really the best way. And, and then you can check out balikbineproject.com uh, to learn more of our, our most upcoming projects. People can come, come volunteer with us, mm. check out Streetlight uh, Philippines. You can Google that. Uh, incredible orphanage. Um and then also stay tuned. We just linked up with a distributor um, for our film. And we're, we're in the midst of trying to sell the film and find the right platform for it. So Sweet. Cool. Amazing. Yeah. Awesome. John, John, you're a beautiful human, dude. Thanks for uh, taking time to sit down and chat with us. This has been amazing. Thank you so much, guys. And um, yeah, I am so inspired by you three and the work you're doing. Uh, let me know how I can help more. So thank you. Thanks, thank dude. you, John, John. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.